Let's together pray. Lord God, I thank you for the Holy Scriptures. This book is your love letter to us. It reminds us how much you're willing to pay out of love for us. Lord, I pray now that you would open our hearts to receive your love. I pray for your help as I preach. And I pray that you would be honored today by all of us. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So I'd like to speak to you this morning about the topic of love. And I'm going to begin and close with a question that you can just reflect on. Do you find it easier to give love or to receive it? So just, you know, let that question bounce around in your, in your heart while I keep preaching. Do you find it easier to give love or to receive it? I'm thinking about an old movie in my head, um, Forrest Gump, and there's a whole bunch of scenes in there that are, you know, quote worthy. But I, what I find so endearing about Forrest is his love for Jenny was such that he named every one of the boats in his, his uh, shrimp company Jenny. All of them. Jenny 1, Jenny 2, Jenny 3. All his boats were named after Jenny. And I have this vision in my mind of someday in the future, should I ever own a sailboat that was nice enough, not like the little ones I've had in the past, nice enough to actually bother to name, I'm going to call it the H. Marie. Because my wife's name is Heather and her middle name is Marie. And I've already told her, I I know what our boat will be called should we ever have one. It's going to be the H. Marie. Because it's not just a romantic sentiment, it's actually a, um, a statement of gratitude for a a God-given gift to have true love and what true love actually looks like. I'm going to show you a picture of something else that's been named. Um, Doug, if you'll put that picture up on the screen of the temple. So this is Solomon's temple, and it's a cross-section of the temple. It's in the back of the ESV study Bible. I kind of zoomed in so you could see it. And you might notice the little man standing down onto the left there, and there's a high priest inside the temple. I, I bought, brought this picture up because I want you to notice the pillars. There's one that's there, and because of the cross-section, you only see the bottom like 10 inches of the other one. In, the, in Solomon's temple, there were two huge pillars, glorious, obvious. They, they were a statement And they were so grand that Solomon actually named those pillars. Do you know what he named the pillars? They have names. One is Yachin, which means he establishes. That's the one that would be on the left, the southern one. And the one on the north is named Boaz. Did you know that? Solomon named that pillar Boaz. The name Boaz means in him is strength. And in God is strength, but we see in Boaz is strength as well. You can read about that in 1 Kings 7.21. The strength that is in Boaz is is twofold as I see it. One, we obviously know that Boaz's offspring are going to be King David and then eventually Jesus. So that's real strength and real love that is in Boaz. But we see a picture of agape love. The Greek word agape is one of four Greek words for love, and it's the highest form of love. True love that gives for the sake of the beloved, not for what you get in return. True love is about the other person. It's not a two-way street. It's simply, I love you, and I want to bless you because of that. It's the agape love that the scriptures talk about so much of God's love for us. He loves you for your sake, not for anything that he could get out of you. And for us to receive that kind of love transforms us entirely. Now, um, Jesus said there is no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. He said that in John chapter 15, as he was actually walking over to the Garden of Gethsemane, his passion, it was where he's going to pray through the night, be betrayed in the middle of the night, and in the, excuse me, in the early light of day, be arrested, be handed over, and die 
out of love for us. He literally was going to give his life out of love for us. That's how much God loves us. Now, I'm finding all these interesting parallels between Jesus and Boaz, between the story of Ruth and Boaz and the bigger story of God's love for us that's contained in this book. Do you know what the word Gethsemane means? It means oil press. The Garden of Gethsemane over in the Mount of Olives, where there are olive trees, had presses, big stone mills that you'd put an olive in and the stone would crush it and grind it and squeeze the olive oil out of it. It would run over the side into a catch basin. Jesus, our Lord, goes to Gethsemane and in so to speak, is crushed. He is crushed and suffers greatly. And I think it's interesting that in the story of Ruth and Boaz, the passage we looked at last week has Boaz in a place where, in a sense, he's being tested about his love. He's being brought to a question, will you marry me and be my kinsman redeemer? Will you step into this role out of love for me? Ruth asks him that question. He's on a threshing floor, much like a a, an oil press. It's where the the wheat is thrown in the air and threshed until the chaff blows away and the grain is left. In a sense, he's being threshed on a floor. Will you have this kind of self-sacrificial agape love for me is the question we left with last week. And that was in verse 9 of Ruth chapter 3. And so we're going to follow up and see what his response is. When his love was called to a point, what did he do? Jesus said, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done and went through with the plan to give his life out of love for us. What will Boaz do with this question that Ruth is asking? So if you want to turn with me, we're in Ruth chapter 3. It's page 224, I think, or maybe 223 in your pew Bible. But I want to suggest that true love gives, not takes. That's my main point this morning. True love gives, not takes. Last week in verse 9, we landed with this. Um, He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. We stopped there. That was her request for marriage, which sounds weird to us in the language that they're using, but everyone would have understood she wants to be married and redeemed and have her deceased husband's family line carried through and the property all purchased back. He's left with that question. Now, let me back up slightly and suggest a couple of things about the Bible. One, all scripture is Christian scripture. The Old Testament is not a separate thing. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Christ. And we know that because Jesus taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, beginning with Moses, who wrote Genesis, all the way through, he opened their minds to understand how the whole scripture is about him. So I'm asking myself as I'm reading through Ruth and Boaz, how is this in some way pointing to Christ, preparing me for Christ? As we read through this story, what is it showing me that is true of Jesus? Not just, that's a quaint story of romance from some dated old time ago. It's actually intentional by the Holy Spirit to be in here. And so we're constantly looking for how does this point me or prepare me for the true ultimate redeemer, Jesus. Secondly, it was written to legitimize David's kingship. We'll see that when we get to the very end of Ruth. Um, they were questioning his, his lineage. Who is this David that's now ascended to the throne? What's his story? Is he legitimate? Is he, you know, is he worthy to be a king of Israel? And this story helps place his story by understanding that this man stepped in in godlike love as the kinsman redeemer, redeems Ruth, and then through their offspring, David is born. David is Boaz's great-grandson. And Solomon, his great-great-grandson, who named the 
who named that, that pillar, Boaz, remembering God's faithfulness, remembering the strength that is in him. All right, so um, I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, if you're reading in the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs ends and the next page is Ruth. And the last part of Proverbs is the Proverbs 31 uh, acrostic of, all, of the Hebrew alphabet talking about the Proverbs 31 woman. And it's this idealized picture um, that no one woman could possibly live up to, so don't think that. But it has pictures of character. And one of the things that it says, in fact, the last thing it, it lands with is, quote, her works shall praise her in the gates. And what we find in this story is the people in the gates are speaking of Ruth as a praiseworthy woman. And so we are seeing that David's great-grandmother was a worthy woman and Boaz was a true redeemer. And so he should be king. So we're seeing all that happen. So it's all scriptures about Jesus. And this was pointing to legitimize David's kingship, but it's actually also a love story. I mean, a real romantic love story. And in and of itself, it's beautiful for that. And it points us to true love, which loves for the sake of the beloved. How many songs do you know that are about what love is? Think, think for a second of your favorite lyric about any one of those songs that describes what is love, that tries to define it. When I thought through that, I immediately went to Van Halen. I don't know why. How do you know when it's love? Sammy Hagar sings. How do you know when it's love? And the answer they give is, it's just something you feel together. Wrong, wrong, wrong answer. Let me give you the right answer. And I go to this text quite often when I am talking with someone who's struggling in a relationship, a marriage or a dating relationship. You know this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you want to know if someone loves you, that kind of love, simply stick their name in there. Boaz is patient and kind. Boaz does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way, and so forth. You can read through that, maybe put your own name in there, and think, how am I loving the people around me, especially those that are closest to me? Does that describe me? Because that's the agape kind of love that God constantly has for us. How do you know when it's love? Well, when it lines up with 1 Corinthians 13. That's how you know. It's the best kind of love. I, I was on a road trip checking out a college, and we drove all the way up to Georgia. And um, in that place in the highway where radio stations aren't so good, um, and uh, Hannah happened to have every Taylor Swift song on her iPhone, um, all the albums, so we just listened to Taylor Swift for like six hours. It was great. Um, <laughs> Taylor sings a song that I think is so insightful. She says, when you're 15 and somebody tells you they love you, you're going to believe it. Why? Because we're so desperate for love. We so badly need it. And if someone says, I love you, we melt and we think, oh, this must be it. True love. No. True love is defined by 1 Corinthians 13. Not when they tell you they love you, when they actually demonstrate it. And what does it look like? How does Boaz respond to Ruth? What does his love look like? Let me count the ways. Go to verse 10. So as soon as she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, Boaz responds, first by praying for her. 
first thing he does. He prays for her. And, it's, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. His first impulse is to pronounce God's blessing on her, to pray for her to be blessed by the Lord. That's not about insisting on one's own way. That's not about him. That's about her. True love gives, not takes. It's about the beloved. So his first response is to pray for her. And then he says that it's a blessing for him that she would even consider him. He's very self-effacing here. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So your first kindness, caring for Naomi maybe, coming out and working the field or even staying in his field just so he could um, interact with her, whatever the first kindness was, this second kindness, meaning that you actually want me to marry you, he considers as a blessing. You've not gone after young or poor, whether rich or poor. You've not gone after the young who might have more vitality and life left in them. You've not gone after poor because you felt in love. You're willing to marry the poor laborer who's been in the field with you all day because you have a romantic attachment. You're not marrying just for feelings of love. You've not married someone who was rich just because they're rich and you need security. Although Boaz, aside from the young piece, has all this. He has vitality. He's, he actually has romantic feelings for her and he's rich. But she didn't choose the quick fix. She she chose him and asked him to be the kinsman redeemer. It was far bigger than that. Verse 11, he says yes immediately. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Now, I'm suggesting he said yes to a marriage proposal. Actually, it was a request for a proposal. So he's, he wants her to marry, to, he wants him to marry her, to to take the initiative from here forward. He immediately says, yes, I will do this. Be at peace. You don't have to be afraid. I will do this. How could he possibly be so quick to respond if he hasn't contemplated this already? He's been thinking about this for quite a while, in fact. I suggest that he's had the hots for her since he first saw her. (laughs) Seriously, there's lots of people in the field, and he goes, hey, whose is that? Who does she belong to? What family is she from? Who's that girl in the field? The very first time he spotted her, and then we're supposed to be kind to those that are sojourners and poor and in need, but he doesn't just extend kindness. He, he has the workers uh, uh, share their water with her. He has them leave some grain for her to get so it's easy. He invites her over to lunch with the foreman, and then he dips, he says, here, come and dip your bread in this, in this uh, wine, and, and gives her so much of a portion of the roasted grain for lunch that she has left over for her mother-in-law and brings all this home. The first day was a big haul of grain for her. Why? Because Boaz was attracted to her. He was blessing her. He was doting on her. This has been going on for six or seven weeks. So he did not have to think much about this. You want me to marry you? Done. I'll deal with this today. I mean, he was quick because he's been thinking about it. He mentions that she's a worthy woman. In verse 11, it says, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. My fellow townsmen is a pretty loose translation. It literally says in Hebrew, all the gate, all of the gate know you're a worthy woman. The town gate at the very front entrance was where like town council happened. The mayor of the town or whoever the leader was would be there. Uh, Major cases were decided there. All of the leading citizens would gather in the gate. So you could think of it like maybe the courthouse or something or the business center. It was where business was done. It was where legal transactions were held. All of the gate know that you are a worthy woman. Remember that Proverbs 31 thing? They're talking about her in the gate. 
Proverbs 31, the last thing that Proverbs ends with is that comment about the, the Proverbs 31 woman who will be praised in the gate for her works. Her works will be praised in the gate. That's happening for her. Literally, everybody in town knows that you're a worthy woman. They, we've been talking about you, Ruth. We've all noticed you. He's pointing this out. And her beauty is not just outward, although I imagine she was attractive. But what Boaz is so drawn to is the inner beauty of her works. Keep in mind, he's a middle-aged man, and age is the great equalizer. He knows how his own appearance is changing over time, and so he's looking for something that will last longer than external beauty. Her character, her works that are being praised in the gate, her love for her mother-in-law. She's demonstrated agape love in her own life. All of this contributes to why he considers her a worthy woman. Verse 12, he's done some research. He's actually figured out, well, if I was to marry her, what needs to happen? So in verse 12, it says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So he's figured out somebody else has the first right of refusal on this. He's not the nearest relative. He's done his homework. And, you know, he's willing to set her free. True love doesn't control. It doesn't insist on its own way. And so he says, I will go research this, and if he decides to redeem you, so be it. Although I think he said it with a heavy heart, hopeful that this other Mr. So-and-so, we don't know his name, um, turns it down. And we'll see next time how Boaz sets up the conversation in such a way uh, that the guy needs to quickly decide, and it looks like he maybe he was very shrewd in how he brought this to the Mr. So-and-so. But he's willing to do the right thing. He delights in the truth. He's not insisting on his own way. The last thing Boaz would want to do is marry her kind of quickly and secretly, and then this other guy comes and goes, hey, I had the first right. You stole my girl. We don't want that happening. Boaz is a man of character. He doesn't want that happening. He does not, love does not insist on its own way. And then verse 13, he says, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And notice the next verse. It says, so she lay at his feet until the morning. Now, I've got to say, we've got a marriage proposal happening. We've got a vow. I will redeem you. We just had this little hiccup with the nearer redeemer to get over. Uh, but it's cold. You've uncovered my lower limbs. Um, you're laying at my feet. In the morning, we're going to take care of this. It would be super tempting to say, hey, come on, let's snuggle. <laughs> right? But again, the kind of man that he is, he cares about her honor. She lays at his feet that night. She's not invited into any kind of intimacy. In fact, he's a little uneasy about the intimate situation they're in already. And so in the morning, it's, he says, um, uh, jumping down, uh, he's somewhere, I, I lost the verse, but he says, oh yeah, okay, verse 14, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Any of you guys that are up early, I don't want a word of this. Do not mention this woman came to the threshing floor last night. That's where he stops. He's, he wants to protect her, wants to protect her honor. And then in verse 15, he loads her up with so much barley, it's kind of comical, actually. Now, we don't, I mean, I'm, I have to speculate here. We don't know the exact amount because it just says six measures. He could have just gone one, like scooped and not had an actual measure. But there are three technical measures he could have used. The first one being an ephah. And an ephah had two types of ephah. So it could have been the lesser ephah, which would have been 180 pounds. 
or the bigger one, which would be 300 pounds. So I'm guessing it wasn't that, right? Because nobody can carry 300 or 180 pounds of grain from out in the threshing floor all the way into the town. So it probably wasn't that measure. The next one, though, is um, a sia, which is either 60 or 100 pounds. Doable, but awkward. And then the last, the, the last one is an omer, which is only a tenth of an ephah, so it would be 18 or 30 pounds. Now, I don't think it was that, because the first day she brought home more than that. And he's not going to send his potential bride home um, with just a little bit. I think, remembering last week, it was an awkward situation that Naomi put them in out of her own anxiety. I think he wanted to make a statement to his mother-in-law. I think he loaded her up with a ton of grain so that they would have an interchange when, she, when Ruth got home in the morning. How did it go, my daughter? I just can picture that. I mean, keep, keep in mind here, it's, it's not like she just lifted up a little bit and he poured some in. She had some kind of other garment on. A shawl, maybe, but it's heavy enough to carry like 60, 80 pounds of, of barley. So he says, give me that, whatever that garment is. And he, and he spreads it out, six measures on there, bundles it up, and then it actually says that he lifts it up onto her. So, so lean over, he loads this thing onto her back, and she's like, you know, I don't know, Santa Claus or something with this. And she's lugging this thing home. She smelled like perfume when the night started. By the time she gets home, she's sweating, starting to perspire. Um, and, and she gets home, panting heavily. How did it go, my daughter? He said, don't go home to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And dumps that right in front of her. In other words, hey, Naomi, I've got this. I'll care for you and her. Your plan was a little ambitious, maybe, or anxious. You don't have to worry. We're going to do this the right way. Now, maybe he was sending it back like a bride price, like a dowry or an installment on a dowry. Maybe he did it just as a a foil to give her a reason to have gone to the threshing floor so that her integrity was protected. Did you go out to the threshing floor last night? Yes. Why? Well, I brought home all this barley. Don't ask me any other questions. Right? I mean, he could, have, he could have been just protecting her. So all of this, though, is Boaz going way beyond just helping. He is loving for the sake of the beloved. He is actually giving much of himself away, his physical property. If they have a son, that property will not be in Boaz's name. It's actually going to be in the family name of Elimelech. So he's going to buy land, pay to, pay to redeem land. He's going to have offspring with Ruth, and then her kids will inherit all that land. Of course, he has his own land, so I don't know that he necessarily is worried about that. But it's, true love is about the beloved. True love gives, not takes. We see a picture of agape love here and romantic love. It's the way it's supposed to be. We like love stories. You know why there's all these romantic comedies? Because we have a need for love. We have a need to be loved, and we so enjoy seeing that happen. Now, in this story, there's a nearer kinsman. And in this particular story, that's not a good thing. But for us, there's an even nearer kinsman than the Boaz and Ruth situation. Because what we need is not romantic love. What we need is not actually marriage. What we need is someone who is even closer than that. And that's the kind of love that God provides. We need Jesus to be the true lover of our souls, the one who dies because we need him to die. He dies for us. He loves us that much. God loves you. That's the message of the scripture. Now, I asked you the question at the beginning, do you find it easier to give love or to receive it? The scriptures teach us that we are able to love because God first loved us. And if you're unable to receive the love of God for you, you will have a hard time loving other people. 
So I want you to sincerely consider, are you receiving the love of God? Or do you tell yourself, oh, I'm not worthy? Or do you have some block or some idea of God that's maybe formed by an earthly person? I want to encourage you maybe to come for prayer about that. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to show you what it would take for you to receive his love. Remember that true love gives, not takes. And the Lord wants to give you his love. He wants you to receive it. And then he wants you to be able to love others like he's loved you. Let me give you one last thought about the kind of love that Boaz has for Ruth and maybe where it came from. Family of origin is really important. How we've been loved in our families oftentimes affects our ability to receive God's love and to love others. This is a really cool detail about Boaz. Do you know who his mother was? A prostitute. His mother was Rahab the prostitute, that when the Israelites crossed over into Jericho, one prostitute believed in God, hid the spies, betrayed her own city so she could be faithful to Yahweh, and God honored her, and she ended up getting married, no longer a prostitute. Her whole town was wiped out. God adopted her into Israel. She had a family, and through her offspring, Boaz, through his offspring, David, through David's offspring, Jesus. Go to Matthew and look at the genealogy. Rahab's in there. Ruth is in there. God loves all people, not just Israel. And this is a tip of the hat to that. The love of God is so broad and so wide. This story is amazing, and it should point us to how great God is. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your love. I pray for your spirit now to touch each one of us and show us anything that is keeping us from receiving your love. Heal us, Lord, so that we can receive you and be able to love others well. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.